So, Jay, Black Tom Cassidy Mm -hmm. has wood powers. He does indeed, Miles. Do you think he became a villain because people kept snickering about that? No, Tom became a villain because of love and friendship. That's confusing. It's really not. The girl of his dreams turned him down, so he went about trying to prove her right to have done so. Oh, that's both petty and poignant. And then he and Juggernaut met in prison and became partners in both crime and life. Their love is real. And shockingly wholesome. These guys really have each other's backs. I know they've saved each other's lives a few times. Oh, that's nothing. One time, for Black Tom's birthday, Juggernaut tried to- Jump out of a cake? I mean, probably. That wasn't the story I was thinking of, but... It would have to be a pretty big cake. It really would. Uh, sorry, you were saying. Right, right, um, yeah. So Juggernaut decided that a good birthday present would be... A Super Nintendo? Trying to share his extra-dimensional eldritch powers with Black Tom. What?! Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 248 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Oh man, 248? That's the number of cakes that Lex Luthor stole, plus 208. And that's terrible. And that's terrible. What's also terrible is certain aspects of some of the comics we'll be talking about today. I'm okay with that. I mean, bad comics can make for good conversation. You know what's not terrible? What's that? Juggernaut and Black Tom Cassidy's love. Like, I am... I am so profoundly and entirely here for this relationship. I'm actually pretty sure that they're the most stable couple in the Marvel Universe if you look at relative longevity of relationship and, again, stability thereof. I think they may very well be, and I love them together, too. And, listeners, as we've gone on record as saying, like, whether or not they're romantically involved is just irrelevant. They're awesome together in whatever capacity they decide to be together. There is, however, a 0% chance that they are not legally married at this point. I mean, you know, what with common law, they've traveled around a lot, so I'm sure they ended up somewhere that had those rules. I am also entirely certain that they have, like, a small cozy cottage with a teapot collection and a bunch of Dazzler paraphernalia. Oh, do you think they maybe have, like, some of those commemorative spoons, too, that they stole? Dazzler ones, sure. Well, we we know the Juggernaut is a huge, huge Dazzler fan. Right, there was that, uh, issue back in the Australia era where he was really pol- apologetic about fighting her. Yeah, well, and he thought he'd killed her and felt really guilty and buried her, and it turned out she was actually alive, and that kind of got awkward. How did the Juggernaut end up being one of the most endearing villains in the X-Universe? I mean, he started off as this, like, unstoppable engine of destruction that was so tough that Professor Xavier had to dedicate half the issue to flashbacks. Combination of tragic backstory and his deep love for Black Tom Cassidy. Like, the two of them are really good for each other as long as you don't pay attention to the crime parts. The crime parts are pretty severely criminal, it's true. But, like, their growth is people, I mean. Yeah, you know, there can be both. But we are not fully here to talk about Black Tom and Juggernaut, although I'm sure we could, because before we get to that, we have some Excalibur issues to tell you about. Excalibur also has issues. They really do, especially at this point. Speaking of, what's their deal these days? Let's see. Excalibur, Britain's premier superhero team, is a mutant-heavy but member-light shadow of its former self. Let's go down the list. Cross-time portal-constructing robotic head widget turned out to be the consciousness of an alternate future version of Kitty Pride, merged with a time-traveling sentinel, and... Uh, you know what? Don't worry about it. The important part is that Widget's not in the book anymore. Cerise turned out to be a Shi'ar war criminal with a heart of gold. She was put on trial for her crimes, but Lalandra commuted her sentence. These days, Cerise is in space and therefore also not in the book. Kylan and Micromax left to do their own thing. Between issues. Off panel. Uh, Speaking of between issues, Captain Britain also fell between issues. Uh, He was lost in the time stream at some point when the team came back from Earth 811. Since then, Megan's been sad and unresponsive and in a waterfall, and adolescent wizard Farron got stuck in that situation with her. Except that also between issues, 
Whoever was working on the book forgot he existed. There is that. And who was working on the book before was Alan Davis, one of the most phenomenal comics writers and artists of all time. I am on record with this, but I feel fairly strongly that Davis's last issue, the last issue of Days of Future Yet to Come, should have ended this Excalibur series. That that what we're reading now actually honestly shouldn't have been made, but if it were, should have been Excalibur Volume 2. Yeah, I, I completely agree. But on the team, that leaves Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Phoenix. Not coincidentally the three most X-Men related characters. Now... Their circumstances have changed as well as the team composition. While they were previously operating out of first a lighthouse and then Braddock Manor, um, the team is now based out of Scotland's Muir Isle, and they're working with Dr. Moira McTaggart, Professor Xavier's somewhat acrimonious ex, to proactively stop mutant-related problems before they spiral out of control and require the involvement of other ex-teams. Plus, Shadowcat got her first new costume in years! Did you take a drink yet? If not, do it now. Or just keep sipping, it's not a very good costume. Hmm, these aren't very good comics. Speaking of, okay, you know how we were talking about the artist Matt Broom in some of our recent X-Force coverage? Similarly, the writer Richard Ashford, maybe he's done awesome things, I'm not familiar with his work, but this run is perhaps not within the canon of those things. Wow, I, I think we've actually hit comics that you're harsher on than I am. Maybe, I don't know... The thing with these is these aren't, like, offensively bad. They're just kind of there. And if it weren't for the stuff that came before them, if it weren't for the just how incredibly, jubilantly, elegantly marvelous the Alan Davis run had been, I think I'd just sort of shrug and, and go on. But but here, it's, it still feels like such a letdown. Ashford was pretty clear about the fact that he was trying to sort of tonally distinguish what he was doing from Alan Davis's run. Um, there's a, a longer interview, I think, in, in Marvel Age that we found on the Real Gentleman of Leisure blog where he goes into that in some detail, and we'll link to that in the Visual Companion, but basically he was trying to do something different, which is a laudable goal, but also different here turned out to mean not as good. And Richard Ashford and Scott Lobdell will, as we mentioned before, be sort of going back and forth on who's writing, who's scripting, who's plotting, who's whatever, right up until the Warren Ellis run, which doesn't happen for a little while. Well, that brings us to Excalibur number 72, titled, somewhat bafflingly, Ooh, Sienna. Everyone's gotta have a favorite crayon, I guess. This is written by Richard Ashford, penciled by Ken Lashley, inked by Randy Elliott and Cam Smith, and colored by Pat Garrahy and Chris Mathis. Yay... And we open with the Games Master. Oh, that's never a good sign. It's an upstart story. Wait, has he been called the Games Master before? I thought he was just the Game Master. It's always actually been Games Master. There's always an S there in the middle, but I forget it a lot, too. Weirdly, I like him better knowing that. Not much better, but better. There we go. He just got 1% cooler. So the Games Master has a mysterious out-of-panel visitor, and this visitor wants the Games Master to use one of his upstarts to steal what's left of Proteus's DNA from your isle. You say mysterious, but there's really only one person running around the Marvel Universe collecting DNA. It's true, and we'll certainly get to him being exactly who we think he is. He's Mr. Sinister. He's Mr. Sinister. But right now, it's mysterious. He's just person with one forearm and hand in panel, because that's what you do if you're going to be mysterious. You, like, pull a Dr. Claw in the Marvel Universe. He does not have a cat, though, which seriously compromises the Dr. Claw situation. Oh, man, I'm just imagining, like, a fluffy white cat, but it's got a red diamond on its forehead, and it's got that weird, like, ribbon strip cape. It would be great. See, I'm imagining some kind of horrific Dr. Moreau-style, like... Summer's cat? I, I like mine better. It's cuter. I guess. Well, anyway, the Games Master knows exactly which of his terrible upstart children to send on this mission. I mean, his options are basically all terrible, so it's not like he can't lose so much as that he can't win, so whatever. And his choice is... Sienna freaking Blaze. She, as she shows up, is annoyed at being pulled away from 90210 reruns, but she does enjoy murder and crime, so she says, sure, why not? 
I mean, so many reasons why not, but uh, she's up for it, so I, I guess we're up to it. And the Games Master takes a minute to remind her and readers that Proteus is Moira's kid with not Xavier, and Xavier's son is an entirely different out-of-control mutant who is imprisoned on Muir Isle. You know, I gotta say, much like the 90s cartoon took Cable's future and Bishop Bishop's future and made them, you know, different parts of the same timeline, I kind of feel like if you're adapting X-Men, just make Proteus and Legion the same character. It's so much simpler that way. I mean, I think pretty much every adaptation except for Legion has done that. Um, they definitely did it in the, the main animated series. Did, or did they in the main animated series? Did they do anything with it? You know, I don't actually remember. I guess we're due for another watch-through. I, yeah, I, I know they did an X-Men Evolution, though. Well, that's reasonable. Anyway, speaking of Moira McTaggart, she's Excalibur's new boss, as we mentioned before, and she has our team of now only three hooked up into virtual reality rigs for training because, boy, howdy, is it ever 1993. Now, the secondary theme of this entire arc is that Maura McTaggart is not a mental health professional and should not be mistaken for one, no matter how hard she tries to convince people otherwise. So the VR rig that she throws Excalibur into is apparently a place called the Proteus Room. This is where she tried to keep her son psychologically stable so he wouldn't use his powers to, you know, destroy reality. As, as Moira says, I haven't brought anyone here since he... I'm trying to tell you that it pleases me to think that some part of my son's legacy can be used to help others. Her son's legacy in this context was that she had she kept him in isolation, basically plugged into a power source and a VR machine that if it worked with him the way it worked with Excalibur, basically plugged him into his deepest fears at all the, at all times. Moro was not a super responsible parent. I do want to focus a little on the dialogue as the characters go into VR, though, because I think I think it's illustrative of just the flat quality of the scripting in these issues. It reminds me a little of the aspects that I sometimes don't like in Mark Guggenheim's writing. I mean, I'm up and down on his writing, but when I don't like it, this is often why. Rachel begins. Something is forming in front of me. And Kurt, for his part, jumps in. This is so strange. Not like any danger room sequence I've experienced, but how bad can it be? And Kitty finishes. I'm really not in the mood for this. All I can think about is Liana and Peter. So I, I, I feel like the fact that this compares negatively to the X-Men Pizza Hut special VR dialogue says something, but also... I have concerns about this whole sequence because they're supposed to be using their powers, but they're in a VR environment, but their powers would be like they'd be using their powers in real life, right? I'm going to go ahead and say this is probably the Shi'ar portion of the technology that Moira at one point mentions. If it doesn't make any goddamn sense, it's probably Shi'ar technology. I mean, Miles, there are a lot of things that don't make sense that aren't Shi'ar technology. But what if they are? Nah. Well, anyway, in these various VR training sequences... As one might expect, since it's Proteus-related, we get some pretty creepy shit. Rachel encounters Jean Grey, who just kind of yells at her about how Rachel is no daughter of hers, and then zaps her. Nightcrawler accidentally teleports into solid rock, which, okay, admittedly, that would be scary. And Kitty is perma-phased until Colossus appears and tries to kill her so that she can be with the rest of his family. This is the worst danger room. This isn't even the danger room. This is like the anxiety dream room. God, it totally is. It's like, hey, if you want to train your fighting prowess against a bunch of spinning blades, go to the danger room. If you want to just feel really, like, depressed and kind of twitchy for the next 24 hours, the Proteus room. God. Moira, none of your choices are good. It's true. But nonetheless, even after this terrible experience, as they all get cups of tea and bowls of porridge in the kitchen of Muir Island's, I don't know, building that has a kitchen, they all feel pretty good about the place. I mean, Muir Island's starting to feel like home. And for characters that have been through so much shit, I kind of buy that. This place, it's a bit isolated, but it's also kind of warm and homey. I mean, it's Excalibur. Home is where the possibly malicious AI is. 
that's very, very true. In this case, though, home is where porridge reminds Rachel Summers of the slop that she was fed in the slave pens of the dark future of Earth 811, days of future past. So kind of weird for her to just come back to that. I mean, I know she's been traumatized, absolutely, but porridge? Really? I also kind of wonder what's going on with one of these sound effects, because as Rachel's describing this, there's a panel that's just Kitty Pride holding a bowl of porridge and what appears to be a sound effect overlapping that bowl of porridge that is just mmm not. Like, is that just the 90s coming through with the sarcastic not? Like, it's not even related. What's happening? Uh, that would be the porridge ghosts. Porridge ghosts. You know the Excalibur Lighthouse level of the Sega Genesis X-Men game that I talked about on the Play Comics podcast a while back did have a bunch of ghosts, so um, maybe they were porridge ghosts. Porridge of future past. Days of future porridge. Oh man, that's like Earth 811.1 or something. But suddenly, there are telepathic horrors coming from the direction of the ocean, which I guess would be any direction, because Muir Isle is an isle. No, I mean, presumably in, in, in another direction, there's there's a strait or a bay or something like that. The ocean is, is in one specific direction. It's an island, but it's an island off the coast of a larger landmass. Oh, that's a good point. There's that hovercraft rental place uh, right across the, the water. Right, there's the ocean and there's the hovercraft rental place. Yeah, I mean, it's a bow and stern. That's basically what they mean, as I understand it. Wait, wait. What if the porridge is haunted by the ghost of Angus McWhorter? Oh, and he's gotten really 90s because all he can do since he's a ghost is watch 90s television, hence the use of the word not. Maybe he's been watching 90210 with Sienna Blaze. This makes a great deal of sense. He's probably lonely right now because Sienna went off to steal that genetic material, so that's why he's acting out. God, it makes so much sense. Or maybe he went in advance to try to help, but remembered that he was a ghost and all he could do was haunt porridge. Hmm, it really sucked to be Angus McWhorter. I guess. He was kind of a jerk. He he was kind of a jerk. But anyway, Excalibur runs off to the rescue, and I give Richard Ashford's dialogue some shit, but I do kind of like some of the overwrought narration he has. For instance... The cosmic flames of the Phoenix Force burn without heat, but with an intensity of light that rivals the brightest day. A beacon of hope for men who mere moments before had none. Well, apparently this helicopter crash into an oil rig and the ensuing carnage and presumably death were all just a distraction by, you guessed it, Sienna Blaze, who flies off in a stream of electromagnetic something or other to go confront Moira McTaggart, who she's been given permission to kill, and steal Proteus's DNA. Not cool, Sienna Blaze. Not cool. So, of course, Nightcrawler takes Shadowcat and teleports back to the lab, but apparently Sienna's electromagnetic powers, being as ill-defined as they are, can fuck with his teleportation, and he teleports right into solid rock. Hey, it was just like in that horrible VR experience. It was Chekhov's solid rock. The solid rock was there before the VR thing. Well, yes, but I mean it's relevant. Fortunately... This time, he yeah, has the presence of mind to bring Shadowcat with him when he teleports into Solid Rock, so she's able to phase them through safely. But before we get to resolve that cliffhanger, we do have a tiny little B-plot, because a handsome man wearing cuffed shorts and Japanese schoolgirl-style baggy socks bribes a boat rental guy, not Angus McWhorter because he's a porridge ghost, to get a boat so he can go to Muir Isle. This is Rory Campbell, and man, you made a Chekhov's gun joke, and Rory Campbell is basically going to be the Chekhovsist gun in Excalibur. Now, those of you who've watched The Gifted may find this name familiar. That's because in that timeline, Rory Campbell is the guy behind the Hound program. And in Earth 811, although we don't know this yet, it's, it's hinted. You can, you can see hints of it. They've got similar hair in, in one page where they both appear later on um, in the story line. Rory Campbell is the man who will eventually become Ahab. Exactly. But for now, he is just a stunningly handsome, very muscular, smart, incisive maverick of a scientist who the writers really, really seem to like based on how awesome they describe him. It's kind of like they want him to be the new Peter Corbeau, but come on. Only Peter Corbeau is Peter Corbeau. Miles, I knew Peter Corbeau. 
I was friends with Peter Corbeau. And that's no Peter Corbeau. Damn right. Rory Campbell, you're a perfectly fine character, but you do not get theme music. I actually kind of like Rory Campbell. I like his his growing relationship to his potential future, because he's going to eventually find out that in Rachel's timeline he becomes Ahab, and he's really going to struggle with that knowledge. Yeah, um, it's pretty dark, and it's actually pretty well done later on, so I do appreciate the character a great deal. I like Rory, don't get me wrong. It's just that... um, I feel like the story is trying a little too hard to make us like Rory, and that makes me like him a little less. Yeah, he's handsome. He's competent. He's got a, an ambiguous white streak in his hair. That's actually just so it matches Ahab's. But right now it makes him mysterious and cool because it was the mid-90s. I mean, I'm starting to go gray a little bit, and, and I don't have a big stunk streak like that, and I wish I did because it looks awesome. So let's move on to Excalibur number 73, Memories Are Made of This, written once again by Richard Ashford, this time penciled by Terry Shoemaker, inked by Randy Elliott, colored by Pat Garrahy, and Chris Mathis once more. In the horrible EM field power-caused storm surrounding Muir Isle, the now boatless Rory washes up half-dead on Muir Island shore, and the narration makes it very clear why. By rights, he should be dead. That, however, is not in his nature. That is not for this man, who would fight the devil himself to survive. That's right, it's Rory Campbell, and he's great. Wait, does this mean he's Wolverine? Uh, I mean, maybe. Who isn't, really? Also, which devil would he fight? I'm gonna go ahead and say Satanish. Eh, just kind of Satanish. Yeah. Wait, does, does Satanish have the baby fists in this scenario? Oh, uh, no, that's Master Pandemonium, I think. God damn it. I thought they were the same person. It's really confusing. I'm glad we don't cover Avengers. Anyway, during all of this electromagnetic carnage, Rachel, Phoenix, does her best to repair the atmosphere. And it's actually even too much for the Phoenix Force. She manages to mostly fix it, but then falls unconscious through the atmosphere. It's not exactly that it's too much for the Phoenix Force. It's the fact that Rachel's powers have been kind of on the blink. She's been experiencing a lot of interference of some kind. And in fact, as she falls, she dreams about her family, about Ahab, about Strife, about even Jen Ascani, and about Captain Britain, who's lurking all scary-like behind her. And she wakes up with big, beefy Captain Britain arms. Like mother, like daughter. I mean, Jean Grey got tentacle arms back in the day in the Morlock Tunnels, and now Rachel Summers has big Captain Britain arms. Yay? But unlike Jean, Rachel rejects those arms and their arm-plications because she doesn't want to think about the time stream. She wants to go save her friends. That seems reasonable. I don't think I'd want to think about the time stream either if I were Rachel Summers. There's a lot going on there. There totally is. So, back in Muir Isle, Sienna has indeed made it to Moira and her computer lab. Kitty has indeed phased herself and Nightcrawler out of solid rock, and there's a big fight. Sienna is such a jerk, though. Like, she calls Kurt a 70s reject, and first of all, he has had as much staying power as any of the all-new, all-different gang, and in fact, he was the first one to get his own miniseries. But also, where does she pull 70s out of in relation to him? Did a lot of people have, like, I don't know, three fingers and toes and wear a strange red V-based leotard thing back in the 70s? Were they blue? I'm gonna have to assume so. Actually, there was that one Starman who was blue in the 70s. Good point. Well, anyway, Rachel shows up having reconsciousified herself and manages to turn the tide, and in fact uses her powers to somehow make Sienna Blaze feel all of the pain that Sienna's powers have caused. I'm going to put you in touch with just a fraction of that pain and see how much you enjoy playing Destructo Woman. Destructo Woman? I feel like this is definitely probably a game that Joni's preschoolers made up in Doonesbury. Maybe. I, I just want to read Destructo Woman's comic. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. 
Well, this Destructo Woman name-calling, and all the other stuff, works so well that for some reason most of Sienna Blaze's outfit just vanishes for the rest of that page, leaving only an uninked, unpenciled red one-piece bathing suit, but then it comes back for the next page. So I guess, like, take a drink and spit it out or something? Maybe don't do that. Well, Sienna is clearly beaten, so she just scratches Rachel's face with her fingernails and then uses her EM powers to EM teleport away. Moira feels correctly that it's probably on her to explain why she has a CD-ROM with all of her dead son's genetic code on it. Apparently, she thought about but didn't resurrect him in classic X-Men number 36's backup story. See, there's a lot I question about this story, but there is nothing that beggars my belief more strongly than the idea that you could fit an entire human genome on one CD in 1994. Well, okay, let me see. They hold, what is it, like 700 megs-ish, and it's all just A's and C's and T's and G's. I feel like you could probably fit it on there. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure how big genetic code is. Probably big. Yeah, but, like, this is an X-Men genetic code CD, which means you know it projects a hologram of DNA. Oh, that's probably true, and it's probably got its own, like, you know, radical guitar effect and, like, special speech bubble drop shadow. Wait, no, that's everything about Adam X, not Proteus. And it probably triggers at least one flashback sequence, so you gotta have that stuff in there. Yeah, okay, this would have to be, like, a whole box set, you know, like one of those jewel cases where it sort of hinges open in multiple places, and then you sit on it while it's on the seat of your 1985 Dodge 600 that's your first car, and you break the jewel case, and you're trying to find another one that still holds two CDs, but they don't line up quite right, and so the liner notes don't really fit, and it sucks. And you get halfway through the genome, and you get a prompt saying you have to put in the second disc. Oh, jeez, yeah, and then it's a PlayStation Black disc, and Alucard tells you not to put it in a music player— I feel like we're getting way too deep into our own 90s experiences here. Let's just move on. The point is, I question whether this would fit on one disc. Well, just as Moira's trying to explain everything we just talked about, Phoenix senses that somebody else is alive. Someone's on the shore. It's Rory! They go and rescue him. He's unconscious. Um... And boy, is he handsome. So they strip him down to his boxers and put him on a weird sort of mummy-shaped bed with its own little arm holders. And we meet the man. And in Rory's own words, this is how Rory decides he's going to give his own elevator pitch to the team he's going to be working with. I specialize in the psychology of control, but I'm considered a bit of a maverick by my peers. Does that mean he has to wear a mask that squishes his nose and makes him talk all nasally? It does not. Well, Rachel is pretty smitten by this non-nasal-talking maverick. A guy like him could really make a girl forget. All the fighting, all the pain. I wonder what he thinks about me. I think I'll attend to his recovery, personally. Does that seem out of character? That seems out of character. I mean... She's not wrong about the could-really-make-a-girl-forget part. Oh! Oh, you went there! Oh, because they- oh, jeez. Yeah, I- yeah, that seemed kind of obvious to me. Well, anyway, Kitty, who's normally the person who's smitten by everybody in sight, decides she's gonna go tell the X-Men that Sienna Blaze is around doing crappy things, and then decides to check in on Megan back at Braddock Manor. Whoa, before we get back to Megan, um... Is this the first time that we've seen a member of Excalibur use a telephone correctly? Well, it's sort of like a holographic TV screen thing. I'm pretty sure they've used those before. Still. Still. Like, she's calling them about important stuff. I'm so proud of her. Well done, Kitty Pride. So Kitty checks in on Megan. Uh, she sort of forgets to check in on Farron, who was in the exact same set of circumstances. In her defense, the writers of the book have clearly completely forgotten that Farron exists by this point. And he's going to get his revenge in Excalibur number 124, which always makes me so happy. Megan, though, is not doing well. She's in her scary bat monster form, and she goes, Rrrr, which leads us to Excalibur number 74 in the name of love. Because if there's anything that makes a scary bat lady go, Rrrr, it's love. This is written once again by Richard Ashford, penciled by Ian Churchill, inked by Randy Elliott, Harry Candelario, and Cam Smith, colored by Pat Garrahy and Chris Mathis. Man, Ian Churchill's bodies are iffy as hell, but the faces are good. I like the facial expressions. 
Yeah, me too. Uh, in fact, the way he draws Megan, who's still in her bat form, like, it's just so emotional. She looks so pained and afraid and anxious and hopeful, like, all at once while being a scary bat lady. Now, nobody is okay here, and we've got a couple different Excalibur members having parallel existential crises. Rachel, for her part, is still having Captain Britain visions, but now with more expository dialogue. He's stuck in the time stream, and he needs Rachel's help to get out. She's scared that they can't coexist in the same, as she puts it, time zone? That's probably not what she actually means, but it's definitely what she says. Maybe Brian can just head to the west coast of America. It's Pacific time. The west coast is the best coast. Rachel is also concerned that getting Captain Britain back is going to mean getting lost in the time stream herself, or worse yet, shunted to her previous dark future. Nah, it'll be fine, Rachel. You'll be shunted to a completely different dark future. It really, really deeply sucks to be Rachel Summers. It really does. But I mean, that's the thing. Like, they pretty much fixed the Days of Future Past timeline in Days of Future Yet to Come, the most, the final Alan Davis Excalibur story. But at the same time, I get it. She's finally found a timeline with friends, with family, one where she feels like she could really move on from all this time-traveling dystopian nonsense. Well, and again, she's a time traveler, so if she gets shunted back to her own timeline, there's no telling when in it she's going to show up. She, she, she could appear after they fixed it, but she could just as easily appear long before. And when you get to the whole branching nature of Marvel timelines, that makes it even more complicated. Basically, she does not want to have to deal with this nonsense, and Megan, who has worked out that Rachel can fix the Brian situation, is not happy about the lack of action. Um, it seems super, super shitty to me that Moira, who literally has a psychiatric hospital in her facility, cannot think of a solution as far as what to do with someone grieving to the point of dissociation other than let's restrain and sedate her. Hey, wait, you remember back in Wolverine Reign of Terra when Wolfsbane started talking about wizards and castles and princesses and Cable just put her in a straitjacket and locked her in a closet? Do you think, like, once she started acting weird, Cable figured, oh, let me talk to Rain's foster mother, Moira, and Moira was like, I know what to do, and Cable was like, uh, I mean, okay... I will defend a lot of things about that Myra McTaggart, but her parenting and her mental health care are not among them. Yeah, yeah, pretty much that. She doesn't even have the evil sexy excuse to go on these days. Rory is at least trying to figure out what's going on, but he's not doing much better. And also there's a page where it looks like Rachel's butt is made of cartoon eyes, and it's very distressing. Sure is. So Rachel self-narrates and talks to Rory and tries to figure out just what to do. Believe me, bucko, I've survived a lot in my life. But that's just the point. I've survived, and that's made me a bit, I don't know, selfish? My life is precious to me. You know, that actually makes a great deal of sense to me, and honestly, I think that's some of the best characterization in this arc right there. We also get our first ironic juxtaposition of Rory's and face and Ahab's. Hope you like that juxtaposition, because you're going to be seeing a lot of it. Meanwhile, Shadowcat is pretty miserable, too. Like, a bunch of her friends are gone or dead. Lockheed's not. Lockheed is right there. And someone who isn't exactly a friend but isn't gone or dead and is very much present in, in a manner of speaking is Jubilee, who it turns out has secretly tucked Ileana's Banff doll into Kitty's duffel before Kitty went back to the UK. Oh, I, I really love them together, especially in this era. Yeah, they are, they're not friends, but they very clearly empathize with and care about each other, and it's, it's, that's a really neat dynamic to see. Nightcrawler, meanwhile, is pretty much doing fine, but mainly just pondering, seeing Mystique the next time he's on the other side of the pond. Specifically, his copy of Skull Island reminds him of Mystique, which is great. Is that more or less ridiculous a way of starting to suspect one's parentage than the time that Cyclops realized Corsair was his dad because Cyclops briefly had a mustache? I don't think Skull Island is leading him to question his parentage. I think it just reminds him of Mystique because she wears a bunch of skulls. Well, right, but ultimately it will lead him to figuring out that she's his mom. It's still not analogous to the mustache thing, though. My only point is that figuring out who your parents are in the Marvel Universe is often strange and involves a great deal of free association. Speaking of free, free association, meanwhile in space. 
Mr. Sinister is displeased that Sienna Blaze failed to procure Proteus's genetic code, and he's about to fucking kill her. But when he finds out that Sienna Blaze got some of Rachel Summers' skin and blood under her nails from when Sienna scratched Rachel, he's like, oh, actually, it's fine. That's even better. That's like DNA from a different timeline. Sweet. And I really appreciate, well, a number of things. But first off, that the knife that Sinister uses to get the skin and blood out from Sienna Blaze's fingernails is like this freaking 24-inch long spiked double-bladed, sharp, backward-cutting-facing monstrosity. Which is to say, something you could buy in any mall in 1994. Especially around Halloween. Um, yeah, I, I, I love this. I love what a creep he is. I'll end you for your failure, pawn. Wait, ooh, are your fingernails extra gross? This changes everything. I don't suppose you managed to snag a toothbrush. He's like the horrible guest who like goes through your medicine cabinet and stuff. Right? I feel like after this he's just going to be sending his agents to scope out like every doorknob, toilet seat, and computer keyboard anywhere near the X-Mansion or the Baxter building. Or maybe he'll just like go through the hero's shower drains. 90s hair is gigantic. I feel like there would be a ton of tangled strands down there. He could just disguise himself as a plumber. And on that note, let's talk about some X-Force. So previously in X-Force, Teresa Rourke's siren is, you know what, we'll, we'll just get to it as we cover the issue. And the issue in question is X-Force number 31, Cry Uncle. It's written by Fabian Nasesa, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by John Holdridge, and colored by Marie Javins. Here's what you need to know in terms of background. Siren has a lot of issues, including that she is an alcoholic. She and James Proudstar, Warpath, are kind of a thing, and she's asked him to come back with her to Cassidy Keep, her ancestral home where she grew up. Last time the X-Men were there, there were fucking leprechauns, and they knew Wolverine's name, so that was a thing. We know two things about Siren's backstory. First, she's Banshee's kid. And second, she was raised by Banshee's cousin, Black Tom Cassidy, who can control wood... <laughs> and uses a shillelagh, and is the ambiguous but committed life partner of the Juggernaut. Recently, Black Tom and Juggernaut showed up at Cassidy Keep, and Black Tom beat up his lawyer for no apparent reason. This issue is basically a slow build of braided exposition. Much of this exposition comes care of a new character. It's a gentleman named Kelvin Donahan, and Kelvin is a local journalist um, with truly epic blonde hair. Who is this dude? Who the fuck even knows? I didn't even realize he was a journalist for most of the issues. He seemed like he was just like a random surfer who had showed up to tell long, engaged stories about Black Tom Cassidy. Oh no, he's totally a journalist. He uh, covers the shampoo beat. That seems plausible under the circumstances, so here's what we get over the course of the issue in summary, which is, is in a lot of ways the history of at least the recent generations of the Cassidy family. So Sean Cassie and his cousin Tom were hella tight, but they also fell for the same girl, it's Maeve Rourke. Maeve chose Sean, and Tom was the best man at their wedding, but then turned to crime, um, basically in an attempt to prove that he really, truly didn't deserve her, and obviously had she had a good reason for choosing Sean, other than that Sean had better sideburns. Aww. Well, then Maeve died while Sean was away doing spy stuff, leaving a baby named Teresa that Sean didn't know about. Sean didn't know that Maeve was pregnant before he left. What neither Maeve nor Tom knew was that Sean was an Interpol agent. He was gone for a really long time. He came back, found out his wife was dead, flew into a rage, and attacked Tom out of nowhere, breaking his leg and permanently disabling him. That's why Tom uses a cane. So Tom decided not to tell Sean about Sean's daughter who Tom had been raising. Petty much? Right? So Tom raised Teresa and was basically a pretty good parent, um, except for crime. And they gardened together a lot, and he, he taught her, you know, his, his love of gardening and plants, even if she couldn't control them, and then sent her off to boarding school so that he could do crime. Okay, so this is weird, and I actually looked into this, because Teresa's first appearance, Siren's first appearance, was in 1981's Spider-Woman number 37 and 38. And in those issues, she was a young teenager wearing a sort of low-cut version of Banshee's costume, helping Black Tom and the Juggernaut do criminal stuff. She had 
super awesome powers, though. She could create sonic holograms of pterosaurs. She could sonically mind control people. She could track them using sonar. Okay, but sonic holograms of pterosaurs. Like, this this is a Mad Lib power, and I love it. So it's easy to forget that Chris Claremont not only wrote X-Men for a million years, he also wrote, like, fucking everything else. And he was writing Spider-Woman at the time, and I actually really recommend reading his Spider-Woman run. I've only read the X-relevant parts, including this, but it is a ton of fun, and it gets pretty gloriously bonkers. I mean, there are sonic holograms of pterosaurs, a phrase of which I will never tire. Fair. So Spider-Woman thwarts all the baddies, and at the end, Black Tom, as they're all getting arrested, says, Hey, it wasn't Teresa's fault, it was mine. You should just let her go and go to boarding school. Sorry, Teresa, I haven't been a great pseudo-dad, uncle, whatever. So Black Tom, at the end of this, is actually a really good dude. Yeah, he tries. So Tom eventually went to prison, and in prison he met... The love of his life, Kane Marco, the juggernaut. Um, and they became an inseparable criminal duo, um, you know, blowing up buildings, robbing banks, and probably collecting teapots and dazzler paraphernalia. And they're so good. They're so wholesome. Look at these good crime husbands, Miles. I know. They're wonderful. I want the best for them, although I wish they would, like, kill way fewer people. Ideally, none. Speaking of which, a while ago in X-Force number two, Kane and Tom blew up the World Trade Center and Cable shot Tom. Now, there's a problem here. Um, when, when you are a, a criminal, a wanted criminal, a wanted super criminal in, in finding adequate medical care. And um, Juggernaut and Tom's solution here was to, to take Tom to France, where... A doctor decided that the best way to fix Tom was to graft wood into him. I feel like this was was at least partially influenced by the fact that their boss, Mr. Tolliver, the less said about him, the better, uh, maybe was mad at his minions for failing, and that the only appropriate punishment when your minions fail to correctly blow up a building is to turn them into tree people. Yeah, so, um, now Black Tom is an angry tree man, and this is a problem, and he's also losing his mind as part of the being an angry tree man thing. And Kane and James, Juggernaut and Warpath, are both really concerned about their significant others. So they meet up in secret and they decide that they need to get their partner's help. And they they, they set up this whole thing um, where they're going to turn Tom in so he can get medical help. Because if, if he gets arrested, they'll, they'll be able to untree him because I guess that's something law enforcement can do. Um, and... Teresa and Tom have a have a big argument and achieve mutual closure, and there are some awkward half-tree hugs. And Tom is remarkably understanding about the whole the whole plan. And Juggernaut, you know, makes it clear that that it'll be okay because he's gonna break Tom out of jail as soon as Tom's better. It's so heartwarming. But I feel like we should focus a little bit on the conversation between Tom and Teresa. I don't think we need to recap it or anything, but it is really maturely, masterfully written. I mean, we see two characters who clearly love each other, but one of whom also clearly resents the other, you know? Tom kept the knowledge of Teresa from her father and kept the knowledge of her father from Teresa for many, many years. And as much as she loves him, as much as she appreciates all he did, she also resents the shit out of him for it. I mean, he also sent her to boarding school because he was busy doing crimes, which is is kind of another complicating factor. But yeah, they they kind of have it out and they they achieve some degree of closure, which is really nice. And I I really like the extent to which in this context, Tom's criminal history and issues are held against him to the extent that they they actively intersected with his his attempts to raise Teresa you know the the the, the stuff that that involved denying that Sean was still alive and keeping her away from him and also you know complicating their life a lot but the issue here isn't oh my god you're a criminal the issue is oh my god you were a really manipulative guardian in some ways and Tom is really genuinely contrite and again there are awkward part tree hugs mm-hmm. and siren's a character who has not gotten a great deal of characterization over the years she's been around since 81 but we don't really know much about her there's her relationship with banshee she fell in love with jamie madrax and fallen angels briefly and she's turned to alcohol to cope with her problems but this i think is really the first time we see the 
wisdom within Teresa. Like she's a fiery character. She gets angry, but she also looks at things in a thoughtful way once she gives herself the chance to do so. She and Rogue haven't overlapped a lot in books, which is a shame because I feel like they could probably learn a lot from each other or more Siren could learn a lot from Rogue. Yeah, I mean, they also have a pretty similar first appearance, like they were each working with a parental figure to do crimes even though they didn't necessarily want to. Well, right, and they both still have fraught and complicated relationships with those parental figures. Yeah, so Fabian Nicieza, thank you for fleshing out the character probably most in need of it, and for letting us hang out with Black Tom Cassidy and Juggernaut at the same time. It's a win-win for everybody. It's also a win for our listeners who, as usual, have questions. Jeremy Williams asks on Twitter, With the New Mutants movie being delayed to early 2020, do you think Disney is going to fix it and make it flow with whatever um, X plans they have lined up? So, even with all the reshoots that, as I understand, are still pending, they're supposedly going to reshoot a full half of the New Mutants to get it more in line with the horror tone that people liked in the trailer, and to get it more in line with director Josh Boone's original vision for it, it's probably still far too done to make any major changes to, to line up with whatever Marvel's going to end up doing with the X-Men. Plus, honestly, I suspect that Disney is waiting to see how Dark Phoenix and the New Mutants do before they lock in their own X-Plans. I generally survive the X-Men cinematic universe by maintaining a careful lack of expectations, plans, or predictions regarding it, so uh, I got nothing. That's probably safer. I mean, the track record has been pretty up and down. But apparently some changes are still being made. I mean, I just read today that they scrapped a villain cameo they were planning on in order to do a different villain cameo that they haven't uh, told us who that is yet. So I guess that's a story element that's still in flux. I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing that Disney's probably just going to do a straight-up full reboot of the X-Universe, and at this point, I think that may be the way to go, honestly. I think the X-Men movie timeline and continuity are just too screwed up. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's been the way to go for about a decade plus. <laughs> that may be true, although I have liked a lot of the recent stuff. I mean, Logan was great, the Deadpool movies, while not X-Men movies, were great, Days of Future Past, I quite enjoyed. But who knows? I mean, how rad would it be if the New Mutants does well to have that be the cornerstone of a new X-Men cinematic universe? I mean, nobody thought that freaking Iron Man would anchor the biggest movie franchise ever, so hey, anything's possible. I wish not everything had to be a franchise anchor. That's a fair point, yeah, but I figure we know the X-Men movies are going to be a big franchise. The Avengers movies did too well for Marvel not to want to do that, so I figure if it's going to happen anyway, then, you know, let's make it work really well. Devin Tui asks via email, The description of Kandra's costume has reignited a question I've wondered before. Do superheroes slash villains whose costume is essentially underwear, Iceman, The Thing, White Queen, etc., wear underwear as well, or is that redundant? It probably varies, and I am saying this based on my knowledge of of basically dancewear and leotards. Um, so I would guess that in some cases they wear specialized art, um, garments, for example, dance belts or rigid cups, I would assume are probably pretty standard elements of male superheroes get-ups, especially ones who wear skin-tight spandex. Now, in general, um, Miles, I noticed that you noted that, and, and I, I found this as well, a lot of gym shorts and you know swim trunks and things like that have sort of built-in underwear, which could be the case with some of those superhero costumes as well, but again, I feel like would be less feasible or less of an option with the ones that are skin tight. Yeah, but I mean, if nothing else, you'd need something under there that was absorbent. I mean, nothing ruins your gravitas like visible butt crack sweat. Yeah, but they could just be lined. Okay, I guess that doesn't really count as underwear, necessarily. Uh, yeah, and the same deal with, with pokey nipples. That's probably not the kind of impressive that most super characters are going for. Although, based on representations on the pages of comic books, um, the, the there's a lot of nipple stuff going on. And also, a f- frightening and horrifying lack of breast support in a lot of costumes. Like, seriously, you know, we talk about superhero costumes and suspension of disbelief, but... I gotta say, if you have ever had large breasts and moved around at all, um, that is that is just majorly a suspension of disbelief killer. I think we're just gonna have to go with Shi'ar technology. 
or sort of perpetual mild wincing as we read superhero comics. Why not both? Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Take it away, angry Claremontian narrator. Nice work, Andrew Broadston. You thought you had the situation well in hand, didn't you? You've thought that before, though, haven't you? And every time, Andrew, look what's happened. Do you think Ryan Dennis would make this kind of mistake? I don't think so. I think Ryan Dennis would make an entirely different kind of equally terrible mistake. Because really, what else makes each of us unique? And speaking of what makes each of us unique, I will pass the mic to someone who probably knows the answer to that question down to the genetic level, Mr. Sinister. Mr. Sinister is foremost a man of reason over feeble human emotion. But as the incompetent failure and fingernail-based redemption of Games Master's Risible Pawn reminded me, the life-or-death thrill of drama does bring a wicked smile to this pale, be-diamonded face. Perhaps a repeat performance will brighten this darkened laboratory. Sam Cruz, you shall acquire a zip disk containing the genetic makeup of Diamondback from the headquarters of the Serpent Society, or you shall die. Painfully. But if you fail, Perhaps the spittle splashed upon you from their entertainingly named Boomslang will buy back your meaningless life. Oren Yirmiya, be so kind as to retrieve the arcane biosignature of Doctor Strange from his Sanctum Sanctorum. Fail to do so, and your dissection will be informative. If you were to inadvertently bring back traces of long sweat when magically hurled into the Sanctum's towel rack, however, you might live to fail another sinister day. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Speaking of, leave us some ratings and reviews. That would help a lot. We appreciate those. And you can also check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every episode, including this one. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Rogue and Nightcrawler team up and learn a valuable lesson about... Drugs? Family. <laughs>